three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we're going to be talking about the role of the truth. What can we believe? What do we know to be true? What do we think to be true? How much of what we see and hear can be trusted? These questions are of direct relevance to the situation in Ukraine, which has been invaded by Russia. However, that's not what people in Russia are being told. On their television screens, and coming from their state-sponsored media, which, by the way, all the media in Russia are, are controlled by the state, meaning the state leaders decide what's, what's allowed to be said and what is not allowed to be said, coming on, appearing on the television screens of, of Russians are the claims that there is no invasion, that, in fact, it's just a peacekeeping operation, and that Ukraine is being, quote, denazified. We'll get to that, what that means in a minute. And that is the purpose of the Russian military forces. They're also being told that there is no fighting, that the Ukrainian people are greeting the Russian troops as liberators, and that it will all be over pretty soon. Well, of course, we, we know, those of us who live in the real world know, that none of that is remotely true. It's a, it's a complete fiction uh, fabricated by the Russian government in order to whip up and control popular support for their invasion of Ukraine, which it absolutely is. But the question then becomes... For those people, for those of us who are not physically in Ukraine right now, it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask in our day and age with so much technology available which can alter or edit pictures, sounds, and images, and even video content in a very convincing way. It's a fair question to ask, you know, well, how do we know what we can believe? Or how do we know what's real? How do we know what the truth is? And these questions are central to the ongoing uh, situation in Ukraine. And so I wanted to provide just a little bit of context to this discussion. Because trying to figure out what's true or what isn't, what's believable or what's not believable, is something that's a, a, actually a very old question. It's a very old debate. It's being played out today uh, with the use of, of new inventions with the internet, but even before there was an internet or even before there was television this type of discussion and these types of questions uh, could be found and, and were often asked either by just, just people who were curious or by philosophers or students of history. And I wanted to start by giving you uh, a couple of examples from the past that, that may frame this discussion and kind of tee it up for us a little bit. And the first one is, the first one comes from Hannah Arendt, who is a philosopher who wrote a book called On the Origins of Totalitarianism. And so what she's talking about here, it's, it's not an easy book to read. I've tried to make it through a few times. I don't claim to have read every word. I've read a lot of it, and I don't claim to understand it all either. But I understand, you know, most of it. And this section that I'm getting ready to share with you pertains to the very notion of how people go about deciding what information that they come into contact with is authentic and what information they come into contact with may be false or have been falsified. So here's the quote. Hannah Arendt wrote, quote, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered 
that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leader for their superior tactical cleverness." Quote. So what she's talking about here is the way in which the leaders of totalitarian regimes, and, and particularly those of Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, those are the biggest two, used control over the printing press, over radio, and then later on, uh, of course, Nazi Germany only had television to a, 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 a they didn't use that as their, they used radio and print, but later on, uh, the Soviet Union did have television and they used that uh, much more effectively. She's talking about how government authorities use communications platforms and media to shape and control and dictate the thoughts of their citizens. So this is sort of a, um, a new phenomenon, at least at the scale that it's being applied. Because previously, in previous regimes, even under, even under monarchs or, or absolute rulers, there was always the possibility that people would come up with a, a point of view that differed from the authorities and that there would be no real way, except for you know, direct force, for the authority figure to punish citizens for having a different belief. But with the new communications tools, such as you know, the printing press, or the radio and television, and today the internet, these provided new means of expression for individuals, but they also provided new tools of repression for authoritarian-style regimes. And so that's sort of what she was getting at. And she made the point that authoritarian regimes in the 1930s especially had become very skilled at using mass media to shape and control the thoughts and beliefs of their citizens. And that is one of the things that underpinned totalitarian regimes such as Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. This is in a, a very big contrast to nations like the United States, which have a First Amendment. And the First Amendment here in the United States restrains the government from censoring citizens. Now, there, there's always been some exceptions to that. It's not an absolute rule but it protects citizens from the government. Totalitarian countries do not have that. There is no free speech rule that protects citizens from their government, and Americans, we do have that. So even though people today will say things like, well, I don't trust our government, good. You're supposed to be skeptical. You're supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to demand proof. You're supposed to have doubt. That's all healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. But when that leads to a situation where you think everything is a lie, as Hannah Herrett observed, then you're entering into a situation where you're more susceptible to the type of mass propaganda that totalitarian regimes use. And that's what Russia is doing today. It's telling its citizens one version of events, the event that serves the interests of the state, even though the version of events being presented has absolutely no basis in reality. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. 
Putin has claimed that the special military operation, which is what he calls the invasion, is done to remove Nazis from the Ukrainian government. Well, it's an interesting analogy because the Third Reich has been gone for almost 75 years, and all the Nazis are dead. Okay, maybe here and there you can find a few centurions who are over 100 years old who may, be, who may have been part of the original Nazi regime that are still alive. But basically, 99.99% of all the original Nazis are dead. Today, there are, of course, neo-Nazis and other far-right groups who wear some of the clothing, who use some of the symbols, and who echo some of the ideology of the original Nazis, which, of course, is despicable and reprehensible. And when they cross the line into committing acts of violence against others because of their beliefs, they've rightly been arrested by the authorities of different states because this is not limited to one nation. There is a sort of neo-Nazi movement in many countries, not just in Europe, but there's one in the United States. There's a very small one in Ukraine. It doesn't have popular support. It's not widely embraced. It isn't supported by a majority of the population. Far-right parties in the 2019 Ukrainian election won 2.7% of the vote, a very, very small percent, nowhere near a majority. So <clears throat> on its face, the claims that, that Ukraine is being denazified are, are a complete fiction. And that fiction itself is designed to resonate with the historical hatreds that Russians have for the original Nazi regime, which of course wreaked enormous havoc on, on the Soviet Union and on the Russian people, and that cultural memory is one of the things that, that Putin is, is playing on. But how does someone like Putin come to power? How does someone like him get in control of, of the Russian government in the first place? And to understand the answer to that, we need to go back a little bit further into the past. And I think here is where a good dose of Thucydides would be very helpful. Thucydides was a Greek historian. He was also an exiled Athenian general, by the way, who had spent much of his life at war, so he understood the horrors and the devastation. He wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, which was one of the first written works of history in, in the Western world, if not the first such work. And when he was describing cities being burned and countrysides being destroyed and armed groups of people roaming around killing each other and civilians, it looked like chaos, it looked like the end of the world, and for folks who lived through it, 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 certainly, it certainly was. And when he wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, he asked a simple question, you know, why did all this happen? And here's his answer, quote, The cause of all these evils was the lust for power arising from greed and ambition. And from, the, from these passions proceeded the violence of parties once engaged in contention. The leaders in the cities, each provided with the fairest professions, on, the, on one side with the cry of political equality of the people, on the other of a moderate aristocracy, sought prizes for themselves in those public interests which they pretended to cherish, and recalling from no means in their struggles for ascendancy engaged in the direst of excesses. In their acts of vengeance they went to ever greater lengths not stopping at what justice or the good of the state demanded, but making the party caprice of the moment their only standard, and invoking with equal readiness the condemnation of an unjust verdict or the authority of the strong arm to glut the animosities of the hour. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. The, main, the, the key part of that quote, the leaders in the cities sought prizes for themselves in public interest which they pretended to cherish. This is a 
absolute, it's absolutely excellent description of how Vladimir Putin came to power. Because when he first was elected to office, when he first gained power in Russia, and this is back in around 2000 or 99, he actually built a reputation for himself as a fighter of corruption. He actually came to power touting reform. And think about the context within which that happened. The Soviet Union, which had been in existence for nearly 80 years, just suddenly collapsed. And so there was a lot of chaos, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of power grabs, there was a lot of money grabs where people used and grabbed the, the instruments of the state to enrich themselves. And of course this made a lot of people, understandably and rightly, very angry. And they looked for a leader who could promise to reform all of that. And so that's how Putin got his start. He got his start as a fighter of corruption, as a reformer. That's how he's, that's, and, and indeed, early on, he did begin to enact some reforms to fight corruption uh, within the Russian state. That's true, he did. But over time, he became corrupt. And what he found was that he could not get rid of the entrenched power or the entrenched interest. And so instead of continuing the fight, he started cutting deals with them. And as those deals continued to grow, he himself accrued large amounts of wealth became very wealthy. He's probably one of the wealthiest people in the world, and also one of the most powerful. And so he gained prizes for himself in the public interest, which is the Russian government, which he still pretends to cherish, and perhaps he really does. But that hasn't stopped him from gaining prizes for himself in, in interest. So this is a very old type of phenomenon. It's been around for, this is, you know, through the city's history of the Peloponnesian War, we're talking probably, you know, 2,000 years old. So this, this is a very old phenomenon for people who are using public office to make themselves rich and powerful at the expense of the people they're supposed to serve. But that also has consequences. And so Thucydides went on to describe those when he said, quote, Thus religion was in honor with neither party, but the use of fair phrases to arrive at guilty ends was in high reputation. Meanwhile, the moderate part of the citizens perished between the two, either for not joining in the quarrel or because envy would not suffer them to escape. And so he went on, Thus every form of iniquity took root in the Hellenic countries by reason of the troubles. The ancient simplicity into which honor so largely entered was laughed down and disappeared, and society became divided into camps in which no man trusted his fellow. Under these conditions, the advocate of extreme measures was always trustworthy, his opponent a man to be suspected. End quote. So think about that. Under conditions where there are people stealing from the state, where there is constant revenge and lying, where the basic forms of trust in a society have been eroded to the point where everybody's divided into camps with no trust, everybody's looking out for themselves. And so we can see this manifesting itself today, and not just in Russia. It's not, you're not unique to Russia. Some of those dynamics we're seeing play out in other places. Here in the United States is a good example. There has been a basic erosion of trust in the government here. There's been a basic erosion of trust amongst citizens in the United States. You could argue that the ancient simplicity into which our honor depended is also being laughed down and disappeared, and society has been divided into camps which no one trusted their fellow. I think you could argue that that's happened in the United States, too. The key difference, though, is that here in the United States, there is an opposition, and the opposition has real power. 
What do I mean by that? Well, we got upcoming elections this year. Historically, whichever political party is in the White House loses the midterms, and I expect that will happen this year too. It's happened under Democratic presidents. It's happened under Republican presidents. It'll probably keep happening. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. We should recognize that. Because without an opposition, without a credible opposition, you no longer have a democratic state. When there's only one source of power with no opposition, then you have an authoritarian rule or even a dictatorship. And that's really what Russia has become. It's not a democratic nation. It's not a democracy. All of the power belongs to Vladimir Putin. Now, he has to still manage the interests of other power brokers within Russia's government and the Russian economy, of course. But he has the authority. And if you watch the, the conference at which, with which he announced, <coughs> excuse me, with which he announced the, um, the, the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, he had all of his senior leaders sitting in a room far away from him, by the way. He was at the center, at the big chair. They all had little chairs seated away from the room. And he had them one by one come up to tell them why it was important for him to go ahead with this military operation in Ukraine, as he calls it. And if they said anything even slightly wrong, he would stop them, correct them, make them say their lines again. This is all in public, all for public view. He wanted people to see this. He would make them repeat their lines again until they, he, until they said it exactly the way he wanted them to. It was really just an astonishing display of authoritarianism in the modern world. It's, it's been a long time since we've seen, or if we've ever seen anything quite like that. And a lot of people make a mistake of saying, well, he, he wants to go back to Stalin. He wants to go back farther than that. What he wants is to go back to the time of the czars, when there was an absolute power that dictated the rule over everyone's life, and maybe use some of the techniques that Stalin has, that Stalin used along the way. So that is, that is sort of where we are. And what that means for our discussion today on the role of the truth and what we can believe is that when the state has all the power, to control what people think or especially what they say, then you have a situation where people no longer live in a free society. They no longer have freedom. And there have been a lot of good literary works written on this very topic. And my personal favorite, it's also one of my favorite books, was written by George Orwell, which is called 1984. I've read it several times. Every time I read it, I find something new. I really enjoy reading this. And in 1984, which he wrote based on, on both Nazi Germany and, and Soviet Russia, you have an authoritarian government that continuously rewrites the past. And this, in fact, was one of his jobs, which is, which is the Ministry of, of Truth, which, of course, is their job is to lie as, as frequently as they can. But whenever Big Brother, which is the leader of the, the regime in 1984, whenever Big Brother says something, the entire written record of the world has to be amended so that his statement was correct. And so people are busy all day long rewriting newspaper reels, rewriting you know, books, rewriting letters and correspondence, so that every time Big Brother says something, they have to go back and they have to alter the entire past of their country and of history so that it matches what Big Brother said. It's, it's diabolical. It's, it's terrifying. Um, and so that is, that is totalitarian rule where not just the political agenda gets shaped, but reality itself, life itself, is under the control of the government, under the control of the authoritarian regime. And any challenge to that authority 
is instantly labeled as heresy or treason or, as Putin has put it, unpatriotic. So any criticism of him or of his party's line is now being termed unpatriotic. And Russia has passed new laws, at his behest, by the way, to imprison anyone who challenges his narrative just for going on Facebook and saying that Russia invaded Ukraine or just for tweeting, sending out a tweet, you can get 15 years in prison. 15 years in prison just for sending a tweet. So I know it's popular amongst folks who debate the, the, the culture wars within the United States to talk about cancel culture, but nothing comes close. Having your Twitter account pulled by a private company is nothing compared to being sent to prison for 15 years simply for expressing a thought the state doesn't want you to express. And so that's where Russia is heading today. You know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of, a lot of thinkers thought, a lot of philosophers and scholars and historians thought that we had seen the end of that type of totalitarianism at the, at the level of a nation state. But it has come roaring back in Russia today. And you should also realize that the type of propaganda that Russia puts out, it is not aimed at uneducated or unintelligent people. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because people accept what Putin says is true, that they're, that they're somehow unintelligent or uninformed. Just the opposite. His propaganda is specifically aimed at people who are educated and who are intelligent because he needs them on his side to repeat the message, to repackage the message, and to convince their friends and associates that it's true. And so the propaganda works by getting people who do have, who are intelligent and who are educated on board with the party leader's message. This was also the case in 1984 where the educated class who worked for Big Brother knew that their job was to continuously keep updating all records in the past so that the statements that he said would, would, would appear to be correct. Some of them were in on the joke, as Winston, who was the main character, later found out. But it still created the same effect when it comes to the population, who themselves had no power and no ability to express their thoughts, either in public or even in private. And the goal of that was to stop people from even thinking a thought that disagreed with the state. So that's what they were. That's what was called a thought crime in 1984. So the goal of the state was not just to control your political agenda and your actions, but even your thoughts. And eventually to get you to the point where you would not even be able to think a thought of disobedience, much less express that thought in an action that would challenge the power of the state. And so we're seeing this kind of war on truth today played out in Russia. And it's part of a larger plan. Some of the, the philosophical backers of Vladimir Putin, most specifically Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, who has written several books, one of which proposed that the way to bring order to the current world is to establish a Russia-controlled supernation state that stretched from Lisbon to Vladivostok, which is to say all the way from Portugal in the west to the far east of the Pacific where Vladivostok is, which is on the, the coast across from Alaska. And that entire zone of land would be under Russian control and under Russian direction. And that everyone who's not ethnic Russian would be a second-class citizen, but they would have to obey the dictates of, of those who are. And so I say that to tell you that if you think that the, the Russian military invasion of Ukraine is where it will stop, I believe that's incorrect.
I don't think they're going to stop with Ukraine. They're having trouble on the ground in Ukraine right now that they did not expect. And this also is a consequence of a feedback loop that doesn't allow for honest thought or, dis or dissent. When you only tell a leader what they want to hear, it makes it impossible for you to tell them the truth. He did not want to hear the truth that the Ukrainians consider themselves to be a separate people. He doesn't want to hear now that the Ukrainian people are mounting a heroic and effective defense against the Russian invaders. And so you'll see him double down on dissent at home by making more draconian laws, by shutting down journalists, not just arresting, by the way. Journalists have been disappeared, they've been killed, people have been threatened, they've been beat, they've been silenced, just for speaking up and expressing an opinion that Vladimir Putin doesn't like. And so that is, in every sense of the word, an Orwellian state, or heading towards an Orwellian state of totalitarian control. And it's a difficult thing to fight, because if people genuinely believe what they're being told, if they truly believe, no matter what evidence to the contrary is, is prevented, presented to them, then this is another question that, that the character in 1984 asked. He goes, what do you do against the lunatic who persists in his lunacy even after you present him with with 100% irrefutable evidence that he's wrong. But they continue in their lunacy nonetheless. What do you do with, with a person or with people like that? And this is, is a question that we're still struggling with today. Um, and, and here's one of the ways that's playing out in Russia. You know, people in Russia have, have access to the internet. Even though the Russian government is trying to curtail it, <clears throat> they still haven't been successful in, in shutting it down completely. And so you have relatives, people in Russia have, have relatives and friends who live in Ukraine who, who are on either social media with them or talking to them on the phone or telling them, no, there, there's a war here. You know, the Russian military is destroying the country. And what you're being told on television is completely false. And, and some of them are starting to question it, but others are sticking to their, their beliefs and say, well, you can't be telling me the truth because I heard on television that that's not true. And this should not surprise us here in the United States when we just, we've just been through a pandemic when the, a portion of the population still thinks that vaccines are more dangerous than a virus, I mean, which is absurd. But again, what do you do with people who cling to their absurdities in the face of all evidence that they're wrong? What happens at, you know, after that point? And in, in, in this goes to the question of, you know, is it possible for people who once have been subjected to totalitarian rule, can they recover? You know, is it possible to regain some semblance of your humanity and, and have normal thought, you know, after that? And it's not clear that that can happen. It's, it's still a struggle here in the United States. We still have a, 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 a struggle for truth here. But the big difference is there's a debate in the United States. We're having a debate about what the truth is. There's still a debate about whether or not you should get vaccinated. There's a debate about whether or not Russia invaded Ukraine. There is no debate in Russia. There's the state version or prison. And that is the critical difference that people need to understand. I don't have a problem with folks say I don't trust the United States government either. Okay, fine, you don't. But to compare that to what's going on in Russia is a serious serious mistake. It's gravely erroneous because we are having a debate and they are not. And as long as we still have the capacity to have a debate, no matter what, to no matter what, you know, ridiculous links it might go, we're still talking about it. We still have the freedom of speech.
to argue with each other in public over what the truth is. That is no longer the case in Russia. And that's a tragedy. It, it's a true tragedy when the truth becomes a criminal act. That's when you live under a totalitarian state. It's not the only kind, by the way, of totalitarian rule that's ever been imagined. Adolis Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World, which imagined a similar, <clears throat> excuse me, a similarly totalitarian rule, but done with a completely different method. And so this sort of echoes some of Putin's critics, criticisms of the West, which he sees as decadent and corrupt and, and lazy, because from our, from our wealth and from our accomplishments, we've gone lazy and, and soft. The, the brave new world of Adolis Huxley was people controlled not from, not from punishment, but by pleasure. So they were allowed to do anything they wanted at any time. And because of that, they, never, they lost all interest in, in responsibility or accountability, or they weren't, they weren't paying attention to what the state was doing. So in that schema, you could, the, the state could get away with murder as well, but they did it in a different way by, by simply allowing people to behave in any way they wanted to. They could take as many drugs as they wanted. There were no rules on relationships, and, and so you didn't have to get married or you didn't have to limit yourself to one partner. In the, in the Brave New World, you could have unlimited partners, and, and it was fine. You could take as many drugs as you wanted. And so the distracted population also allowed for... A, um, a totalitarian style of rule. And this, in some ways, is how Putin sees not only Europe, but the United States. And this explains why he was surprised, whether he'll admit it or not, by the response of the West. Because like Stalin before him, he believed that the capitalist countries were, were decadent, were corrupt, they would their regimes would eventually be overthrown by the people that they were repressing, and most importantly for today, that they couldn't work together for very long. Stalin didn't think that, that capitalist nations would be able to cooperate for very long until they'd be at each other's throats again. And, and I think from the indications of seeing that Putin believes this as well. So even though while we're seeing a play out on the ground in Ukraine, a, a grinding, a coming of the, the, the Russian invasion is coming to sort of a grinding halt for now, and we hope it will, we want it to be over soon, I think Putin thinks time is on his side. Because he thinks that we're, he still thinks of us as a decadent, corrupt nation and society who can't sustain the will to oppose him for very long and that eventually we'll just either, we'll just tire of it or give up or start disagreeing with each other and then we won't be able to amount an effective resistance <coughs> excuse me again it's our allergies um, and so that's sort of the the overall view when we think about uh, but the what's going on in terms of an information campaign because that's a crucial part of the war in Ukraine the battle for belief the battle for truth is an integral part of this. And you will hear people today, here in the United States, repeat word for word the complete fiction that the Russian government has is putting out 24-7. And they'll look you right in the eye and, and tell you that they believe it is 100% true. And it's not. And so we're going to have to continue to fight that battle for attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs. And it's going to be a long struggle. You know, history has demonstrated to us when people have a belief that conflicts with reality, the tension between those two is eventually going to force a choice. At some point, you're either going to have to abandon the belief or abandon reality. And unfortunately, history has given us many examples where people have chosen, at least at first, to abandon reality rather than abandon their beliefs. And that's very problematic because once you lose touch of reality, once you lose sight of what is real and what is true, 
there's almost no limit to the amount of damage that you're capable of causing. And this was Voltaire's point. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit injustices. A lot of people translate that as atrocities, but the actual, if you, whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. But actually, the, I think the, the literal translation is those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit injustices. And this was Voltaire's reference to the fact that when, whenever people questioned the, at, the, at his time, in the, in the 1700s, when anybody questioned the church, they would, you know, be captured or punished or burned at the stake or what have you, by the religious authorities who would not allow any act of disobedience or any questioning of their authority to go unpunished. And so that was sort of why he wrote Candide, which lays out all of that in its, in its really its horror, but also as he tries to poke fun at religious authorities as well, because it's pretty clear to everyone that, they're, that they're, their acts are based on, on pure fantasy. And it's a struggle we're going to have to continue. We're going to have to continue that. Uh, it'll continue today, especially with the internet, with so much ability to generate audiovisual content and say, "Well, I saw it; it's real." There are some good sources of information out there to help determine whether or not what you're seeing or hearing is authentic. The Center for Information Resilience is a non-government, non-profit agency run in the United Kingdom. They have a very good team of digital forensics experts and computer scientists who look at content that's posted, and we'll use the Ukrainian example from Ukraine and they timestamp and geotag and make determinations from that based on whether or not the content is authentic or not because some of it is some of it isn't the Atlantic Council also has a good digital forensics lab which performs a similar function so there are ways that you can there are resources available to help you determine if what you're seeing or hearing is in fact authentic there's nothing wrong with asking that question it's a very legitimate question now more than ever as to, as to what we're seeing and hearing is true and what the truth is. But the fact remains that there is a truth. There is, There are such things as facts. And it is a fact that Russia has invaded Ukraine. That's a fact. And it's a fact that their government is lying about it. And they're perpetuating a fiction, a total fiction, to control not only their population, but also to try to control the responses of the rest of the world. While the Russian government's message has resonated fairly well within their own audience, it's fallen pretty flat. The rest of the world, we're not buying it, and for good reason, because none of it's true. But always remember, the battle for the truth is going to continue. And so not only is Ukraine under attack from Russian forces, the very idea of truth itself is also under attack by Russian forces. And so with it is the idea of freedom, because that's what Ukrainians want. Were they a perfect government before the Russian invasion? Of course not. Did they have problems with corruption? Of course they did. They'd be the first to admit that. But they want to determine their own future. They want to govern themselves. That's self-government. That's what a democracy is. Ukraine had been an, an independent nation since the fall of the Soviet Union for a little over 30 years. If you went back in time to the American Republic 30 years after we defeated the British Army, do you think you would find the perfect, well-oiled machinery of government absolutely without flaws dispensing services to the population? Of course not. It doesn't happen in 30 years. It could take three times that long, sometimes longer, for people to figure out, maybe never, for people to really figure out self-government. We're still struggling with it today. We're not perfect by any means. 
Our government needs a lot of work. We, we'll do separate shows on that. <clears throat> but there's a lot of flaws with our government that need to be corrected. There's a lot of corruption in our own government that needs to be addressed. So the struggle for self-governments is an ongoing one. But they are being denied the right to even try. And so make no mistake, it's not just Ukraine that's under attack. It is the idea of truth and is the idea of freedom. Both are being attacked by the Russian military in Ukraine and by the Russian propaganda machine coming out of Moscow. And we are going to have to deal with both of those going forward in the future. And we'll have separate, separate shows on those topics. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I thank you for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. Mm-hmm.